the actual, you know, agricultural resources of the Liverpool Plains are magnificent. I would have to say it is one of the most blessed agricultural areas I have ever seen. It's the fear of the unknown and no matter how many studies they do on it, they can't guarantee that if it leaks, that it will not destroy. Pretty much the whole of Australia loses out if the the soil and that that you know things are carried on here that shouldn't be because there's certain areas that shouldn't be mucked with. Just about everything we do at Dirty Linen and across the whole Deep in the Weeds food podcast network rests on farming. Without productive farmers, we don't have restaurants. We don't have those resonant, connected stories of cuisine and culture that we love so much and that we know you appreciate too. And fundamentally, without farmers, we don't eat. It's basic. We also know that we need to cease coal and gas mining because of the emissions they create. The science is unequivocal. The catastrophic climate risks are too great. The move to net zero makes allowances for legacy mining, but it's clear that any new coal or gas extraction tips into dangerous territory. Given all this, we're keeping a close eye on the Liverpool Plains and the gas mining exploration licences held by energy giant Santos. Join us all week as we talk to people in the region who are likely to be impacted by any mining activities and are mobilising against them. It's an interesting coalition of farmers, bakers, townspeople, traditional owners, and longtime journalists and community members. What becomes clear in these conversations is that this is a local fight with broader implications. If you eat, if you live on earth, this fight matters. By the way, we've reached out to Santos for comment. We look forward to a response. We know that should coal seam gas mining uh, proliferate across the Liverpool Plains, that the impacts to agriculture will be enormous, negative and long-term, and will be detrimental to our agricultural production. Possibly Australia's greatest, most important and richest food bowl is the glorious Liverpool Plains, about four hours northwest of Sydney. It's exceptional farming land. Some people say it's second only to Ukraine in terms of the most fertile land in the world. Mining has also been part of the picture in the Liverpool Plains for decades, but probably for most of this century, locals, an interesting coalition across farmers, traditional owners, townspeople, producers, bakers, uh, CWA, SCON activists, have gathered together to fight off mining giants, including BHP and Shenhua, who have been in the area uh, interested in the coal that lies underground. Uh, Now Santos, gas company Santos, is asking farmers for access to their land to explore for gas and install a gas pipeline. Their licences came from the New South Wales government, but this same very organised and savvy community, farmers, bakers, politicians, don't quite trust Santos when they say that any coal seam gas mining they undertake will not threaten the underground aquifers, which are a big part of what makes this land so rich. There are two main projects they're talking about, the drilling for gas and the gas pipeline, but the whole project or series of projects is shrouded in a sort of multinational mystery, a veil of secrecy. Our guest today is Kate Gunn, farmer, activist, part of the Liverpool Plains Action Group, 
and um, someone who's very passionate about the region. Kate, welcome to Dirty Linen. Hello and thank you. It's so great to have you on the show and as part of this special series around Liverpool Plains and the Coal Seam Gas Projects. Um, Tell us a bit about yourself, Kate. Uh, Well, I'm a farmer on the Liverpool Plains. So I um, went off to uni and um, I went to uni in Sydney and um, hadn't really, I mean, I'm from the land. My parents are here and I'd always loved the farm, but I hadn't really entertained a career in agriculture. So I went off to uni and got educated and I just couldn't um, think but that there must be opportunities for me in agriculture. So I made the uh, uncomfortable decision to ask my parents what they would think about their daughter coming home farming because that wasn't that common at the time. And they very fortunately agreed. So I've been here farming for uh, nearly 20 years. And what do you guys farm? Uh, we're cropping primarily. So we're all dry land and we also have beef cattle. And give us a sense of the land, like um, where actually are you situated? What's it like? What's it like to be there? Yeah, so we're just um, southwest of Gundadar. I, well, I think it's a beautiful part of the world. I may be a little biased, but, you know, you do get, there are very few people that don't, you know, when they come to visit, they come up from Sydney or whatever, and they're just blown away by how beautiful it is It is here. And, um, of course, the actual, you know, agricultural resources of the Liverpool Plains are magnificent and that was part of the reason that I decided to um, pursue a career like there just are more opportunities on the Liverpool Plains it's a real highlight of Australian agriculture we've got these beautiful deep black soils with this tremendous moisture holding capacity so the moisture holding capacity of the soil ultimately means that there's water available for the crop Um, like even outside of rainfall events. So, of course, the reserves in the soil would deplete over periods without rainfall. Um, But the system of farming means that the crops um, have that moisture to draw on and then in between crops we rest the soil and the moisture profile has time to replenish and um, it just makes it really reliable for production. I mean, I guess farming's got a a pretty interesting history in Australia and indeed throughout the industrialised world where a lot of farming has been about take, take, take and not replenishing. Over your your life and, and your career, how have you seen that change or shift just in terms of how people value and look after this resource? Yeah, so I think... Most farmers have had a pretty big focus on sustainability for a really long time, but as we've had new technologies and new ways of testing, it's made it made it easier for us to manage So, and also to monitor the systems and the impact that we're having on the soils. So there's a lot of practices like controlled traffic farming, which um, means that there's GPS technology uh, drives the machinery along the same track all the time and also zero-till farming, which is where you leave the stubble standing, which helps the the integrity of the soil and also helps it hold moisture in and um, variable rate fertilizer practices as as well as variable rate seeding. There's just a a whole heap of new technology that is making sustainable farming so much better. And what was it about farming or about the region that drew you back? Why did you just, you know, why did it pull you back like an elastic band? Well, I will say I'm a pretty big fan of the great outdoors. So I love being in open space and I do love the city as well. But when it came to, you know, choosing 
a life. Um, I definitely was having a bit of trouble thinking that my entire life would be in Sydney. And I'd always, the whole time I lived in Sydney, I always just loved coming home for a weekend and I always came home in the holidays and worked. Um, but also the uh, farming business is an incredibly diverse business. I mean, there's obviously the production side, but then you've got all those other things, you know, you've got finance and <clears throat> and team management and you've got um, like marketing. There's so much to it. So it's not like you're only out in the paddock, you know, slaving away in the hot sun and things like that. <laughs> so what might a typical day involve for you? Well, I will say that, um, I do spend more time in the office now than I, <laughs> is, is ideal. <laughs> um, but I don't, I guess I, I typically have at least two office days, but then, you know, you might be doing a bit of cattle work and then there's harvest time. You know, there's lots of action at harvest time, might be on a chaser bin, planting on a tractor, and then, um, you know, all the other glorious things that you can do on a farm. Kate, tell us about the community in the Liverpool Plains. You know, what was it like to grow up there? What, what sort of community activities took place? And, and what, what about that side of things drew you back? Yeah, the Liverpool Plains has got a really strong sense of community. And there's sort of, there's not really necessarily one community. It's sort of made up of multiple little um, satellite communities, I suppose. I mean, we've got our main towns like Gunnedah, Corindai, and, and Tamworth's sort of our urban centre. It's on the very edge of the Liverpool Plains. Um, but there's all these little villages like Spring Ridge, Mullally, Breezer, Kaluas, Prima, and they just have, you know, they have a school and a pub and a post office and the people around them are just so committed to making sure that those things keep going that it's just you just get a really wonderful sense of community. And <clears throat> also, like, because of the reliability of the Liverpool Plains, it also makes it a more attractive place for young people to come back to. So when I was growing up, you know, there was there was the millennial drought um, and there was a lot of farming parents saying to their kids, don't come home. It's, you know, it's too hard. Um, not that the Liverpool Plains doesn't experience drought, but it's just more reliable. Having a more reliable production farming system makes it easier to have stronger communities. Well, Kate, tell us about mining in the region because it's long been part of the picture. How does it intertwine with the agriculture on the Liverpool Plains? Uh, so the Liverpool Plains, well, like Gunnedah, Gunnedah has a very, very long and important history with mining and there are a number of coal mines to the um, north, north, north and northwest of Gunnedah. And um, I guess if you talk about the Liverpool Plains, the entire sort of subcatchment, there is a lot of mining in there. But then there's sort of this um, more to the um, southeast of Gunnedah, I suppose, or, or of Bogabri, really, from Bogabri southeast. Um, it's got a, a fundamentally different like the groundwater resources mean that there's a lot more irrigation and there is a lot more of that flat black soil so it's a particularly um, high producing area and <clears throat> also that means that the water is like the underground water resources are more vul vulnerable to damage and there's a high level of interconnectivity so you know, one aquifer here is actually connected to another aquifer over there. Therefore, damage to one impacts the other. So the, the, that is the reason, that interconnectivity of aquifers is the reason that the proposed BHP mine at Karuna 
and the proposed Shenhua mine at Breeza were not allowed to go ahead or a significant contributor to the reason anyway, um, was that was that interconnectivity between aquifers. So it was, you know, irrefutably shown by some work that Professor Ian Ackworth completed um, that, that the groundwater modelling that had been put forward by the proponents for those projects was totally incorrect because that modelling relied on the assumption that there was no interconnectivity. So once that fundamental assumption in that mod- modelling was shown to be incorrect, the entire water modelling was then redundant. And how perilous is it for that water to be, if it was, um, if that water was poisoned, I guess, like if it was... Um if it was contaminated, what impact would that have on the region? Well, there's there's two two very concerning impacts to water. One is supply, and the other is quality. So, um, <clears throat> water is the lifeblood of everywhere, really, but particularly rural areas. So we are entirely dry land farming, but we require groundwater to live. You know, to water cattle, and obviously to withstand periods of drought. Um, so water should be always looked after. It is the most precious resource we have. Um, with coal seam gas extraction, it, in the process of actually extracting the gas, what they do is they dewater the aquifer to, to then release the gas. So they're actually extracting huge amounts of water to get the gas. And that means that that will then impact far and wide around it. As, you know, the groundwater resource is depleted, it will mean that the shallow aquifers, which is, um, so there's different aquifers under underground, but they are um, connected. Um, so the shallow aquifers will drain down into the deeper aquifers, meaning that the farmers that have bores that they just use for stock and domestic, which are usually the shallower ones, they will drain and then they will not have water available to them. And, um, Ian Ackworth predicts that, you know, with coal seam gas extraction combined with current extraction, that the water resources could be pretty much entirely depleted by 2040. And that is really, really terrifying. So what are the different forces at play? Because when you say it like that, Kate, it seems pretty obvious that this just shouldn't happen. So why is it even a possibility? Uh, well, that is a really good question. Um, <laughs> it does seem like it seems to me just absolutely crazy. I think it's got to do with so, so Emeritus Professor Ian Ackworth, he's a hydrogeologist. He has, um, you know, he sort of says that it's due to the disconnect between, say, you know, the Department of Mining or Resources and the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Water. They don't necessarily talk to each other and nor do the hydrogeologists from the mining industry or the agricultural industry. So there's this sort of disconnect. And also, you know, if there's been models put forward that make certain assumptions um, and then there's, like, say, with groundwater modelling, so there's (coughs) assumptions have been made but they're actually incorrect but no one's actually, you know, put forward a paper to show that they're incorrect, then the information just keeps piling on top of these incorrect fundamental assumptions that ultimately leads to very bad decisions. So tell us 
about your work and the Liverpool Plains Action Group, like who who is it? What are you what are you fighting for? We are fighting to protect the Liverpool Plains um, for so that the Liverpool Plains can be the wonderful agricultural area that it is for a very, very long time, like, a, you know, in perpetuity really. We know that um, agriculture on the Liverpool Plains is sustainable and there's been farmers producing here for hundreds of years and we know that that can continue for hundreds of more years. So that is ultimately what we're fighting for and we know that should coal seam gas mining uh, proliferate across the Liverpool Plains that the impacts to agriculture will be enormous, negative and long-term and will be detrimental to our agricultural production. So, I mean, these lands are privately held by farmers for the most part. What is the actual, what's the legality of exploration um, on on these lands? Like can farmers simply shut the gate and then Santos doesn't come in? So what Santos just, they just recently did some exploration just near near where I live. So they, they did exploration on the public roadside. Um, so I presume the, well, you know, th- that's not farmer's land. So the they just submit their paperwork to the department and, and get a tick. And they also um, se- seismic tested through the Wanderbar Conservation Area. So what they do in quite a few places is they sort of, not sort of, they start in a state forest and obviously get permission from the government to commence coal seam gas extraction on land that's not privately owned Um, and then it just sort of spreads from there. In terms of farmers denying them access for exploration, um, they haven't, well, in our area here, they haven't actually tried to come onto farmers' land for exploration purposes yet, Um, but you do have the right to say no but eventually, I mean, they can then take you to, um, I think it's first mediation. And then if you still refuse, then they can take you to arbitration, at which point um, access can be imposed on you. And then you can then, if you're still wanting to fight that, you then take that to the Land and Environment Court. Wow. Because, yeah, as I understand it, like the farmer's own basically like what's on top of the surface and then what's under the surface is sort of up for grabs and the government is able to grant licenses for exploration and extraction is that is that right yeah that's correct and say like with a coal mine where they obviously need the top part as well or mostly well sorry with an open cut coal mine you know they need the land area on top as well so they then have to go and purchase the you know the entire area um, but with coal seam gas mining, they, they need a you know a well pad and a, and a road access and so on, but they don't need you know all of the associated land. However, they can from one well pad horizontally drill underground for an awfully long way. I believe it might be two kilometres or something. And in terms of the footprint of coal seam gas mining, it's actually got a you know, it's a huge geographical footprint as opposed to a coal mine, which is a more concentrated area. Although, of course, you do then get the underground um, offshoots from a from a coal mine, which travel for a very long way as well. Yeah. So when when you saw these um, 
these initial works near your your land, Kate? Like, how did you feel? Well, it is was very sad. It was it was really sad. Like, it was very sad to know we we had community consultation or in November because um, they were actually meant to do the works at the end of last year rather than in January of this year. So I went along to community consultation and I asked a lot of questions um, and it was very alarming. So I asked, you know, sort of why are you actually doing this? Anyway, Santos confirmed that they do in fact aspire to extract as much coal seam gas as they can from the area. And I asked if there was anywhere that they would consider to be off limits, you know, for various reasons. And the representative said, no, that wasn't the case, um, which alarmed me because I thought, well, surely they must think some areas are, you know, of high value for something else and just say, no, we wouldn't ever go there. Um, And they were very um, dismissive about um, any risks that they would be posing by coal seam gas extraction, which was also very frustrating because there are so many negative impacts coming out of Queensland. So it's not a matter of, um, you know, how will they be damaged, it's how much damage will they be. I mean, what do we stand to lose in an agricultural sense? Well, we well the water resources and the impacts of, it, I mean, all of it depends on, how bad it how bad it really is, but the impacts of like dramatic decreases in the supply of groundwater and the you know contamination would be absolutely massive. Like I don't think there would be it would be really hard to live in many parts, like in many rural areas, without clean groundwater. And then of course you've got. I mean, there is a vast amount of information coming out about the health impacts of people living near gas fields and there's obviously the impacts to the environment and Gunnedah's, um, you know, been the koala capital for some time so there's some very high-value koala habitat that would be under threat. Um, and just in terms of agricultural productivity, if they're, you know, underground drilling and there could potentially be subsidence on the top um, if you know what I mean. So they would go along horizontally under the ground, extract water and gas, and then the top of the soil, which is where we farm, can like subside. And this is happening in Queensland. And what that means is that so I, our farming systems now, they're all highly efficient. Many people even have like laser-level paddocks. But it requires that, um, you know, these subsidence areas, they would lay water, which would mean that then you couldn't drive from one end of your paddock to the other. And with farming, as with many things, but timing is everything. So, you know, once you get to your sowing window, you need the moisture in the soil to be right and you need to be at the, you know, within a matter of days. So if you have to wait for this subsided area to dry out to plant that entire paddock, it could be costing you, you know, like literally hundreds of thousands of dollars when it comes to your production. Um, And, oh, there's also um, um, insurance companies are not not comfortable really with um, insuring coal seam gas infrastructure on farms. So some have said that they actually just won't insure the farm. Some have said they'll insure the, you know, only the farm but not the CSG infrastructure or any activities or, you know, events resulting from that, that activity. And as you know, with insurance and unexpected events, that, that leaves a pretty grey area because if you do have some, 
you know, weird event that you can't even think was going to happen yet. But And then it always comes back to, well, who caused it? Um, yeah, so look, there is there is a lot of negative impacts and they are broad and long-term. And, you know, you're, you're joining with other locals to fight this. Um, who, are you, who are you fighting? Like where there's a new government in New South Wales, there's, you know, government that's been in office for almost a year federally. Like where, who is, who is with you and who, um, who is not? Uh, who is with us? I, I believe that we have quite a wide range of support from right across Australia. So when I talk to, so I represent um, grain growers on the national policy group of Grain Growers Limited, which is a um, industry, a federal industry body for the grains industry. So I do get a bit of, um, you know, get to chat with farmers from right across Australia several times a year, which is wonderful, but they just cannot believe that the Liverpool Plains would be subject to coal seam gas mining. It is just unfathomable to farmers like right across Australia. Um, I think we've got a lot of support from anyone that's concerned about climate change because the, you know, the greenhouse gases that are going to be released into the atmosphere from this entire coal seam gas project are disgraceful. Um, And what are we fighting? So the problem stems really from the New South Wales Future of Gas statement that was released in 2021. So it was released just shortly after John Barillaro came up and stood on the Liverpool Plains and proclaimed there would be no more mining on the Liverpool Plains. So that is a very large part of the problem. And obviously the government, I don't know who who you, that came from the government and it is the government's policy, although it's a new government now, I guess it's, the, you know, it's an existing policy that I believe needs, ser- believe needs serious review because no one seems to know where it came from. I mean, someone must, but there was no uh, consultation done with the community. There was no consultation done with local government. So it is um, really a mystery as to who thought that was such a good idea. And then obviously we're fighting Santos, who is the proponent for the Narrabri Gas Project as sort of the starting point for this entire um, gas proliferation and the Queensland Hunter Gas Pipeline and the Queens- uh, then the, the Narrabri Lateral. And, and, you know, you mentioned that Santos came and uh, engaged in quote-unquote consultation, um, but it doesn't sound like it felt very consultative, that it more felt like a um, a bit of a whitewashing exercise. Uh, you know, is there a hotline? Like, have they given you someone to chat to? Oh, they gave us an email address and I did email them um, several times after that. And, f- well, I was just really emailing them asking when they were actually going to be doing the works and I found them to be incredibly unresponsive and unhelpful. Um for example, you know, we were in the middle of January and I emailed asking when the works were going to proceed and they said, oh, they thought later in January. It was, you know, they surely would have had work crews organised and people lined up to actually conduct the work. I mean, they knew when it was going to happen. And then they just came and did it. And then they just came and did it, yes. So, and, you know, they, they um, you know, the first day, like I was driving into town to drop my four-year-old to daycare 
so it was, I don't know, about eight o'clock in the morning or something. And there was just like this convoy of 25 vehicles and trucks and all with their lights on, which is quite unusual for our otherwise pretty quiet road. <laughs> so it kind of felt like we're here. You know, it was like the army coming out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is not the farming um, idyll that you returned from Sydney for. Yeah, and so then that was on a Monday and so they continued they, – that was on Monday the 23rd, so they continued through that week and then on the Saturday afternoon they were on like a, a road, a very quiet road, sort of like a dead-end road and some of the farmers who are my neighbours, um, they just couldn't stand it so they actually bailed up the – seismic trucks just by parking in front of them so they couldn't the, you know the work hours were only but you know they couldn't work after dark anyway so so they bailed them up for a few hours there on the Saturday afternoon and then yeah said well you know called called around and said can everyone come and help us so Sunday morning lots of us went into the forest it was just on the corner of the Wanderbar conservation area um, lots of us met there and had a cup of coffee and um we didn't really know what we were going to do, but we didn't want the trucks to keep going and we wanted them to know that. So <laughs> anyway, we were just chatting away and then the police arrived. So Santos had called the police. They hadn't actually come down or there was there was a couple of the Santos um, people there, but they hadn't actually, they'd told their workforce to wait up the road. So we didn't actually even know they were trying to go to work. We just thought they weren't really doing anything yet. Anyway, next thing the police arrived and pushed us all off the road and it was a bit of a kerfuffle but yeah it was that was also very sad I mean there was entire families including my own you know kids grandparents everyone and they just called the cops and pushed us out of the way I mean and presumably the police are in the community as well like probably half of them are related to the people in the blockade I don't know that, but I did feel bad. I mean, I don't think the police found that a very fun job, yeah, and I felt bad for them. It's a very awkward situation. They do need to uphold the law, um, but it's, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, we know that about 70% of Australia's gas is exported anyway. I mean, is, is did Santos talk about any benefits to the community or to Australia from the work that they wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, Santos talks about jobs um, and income and, you know, the benefit to support industries like, you know, for example, motels and um, I guess the, you know, some of the heavy industry type things that would support the developments. Um, That's really, that's the benefits. They drive them pretty hard, very hard, and that does excite quite a lot of people as well. Um, You know, there are many prominent business people in town that think that would be absolutely wonderful. Um, as we know, though, like Gunnedah already and has had for some time a skill shortage. It doesn't have a job shortage. So it is highly likely that there is not skilled workers in town looking for a job. So it would either be, you know, uh, you know, not local workers anyway. And plus, Gunnedah has also had for a very long time a housing shortage which means that workers are going to end up either, you know, fly in, fly out or be in workers' camps. I mean, you're talking about preserving these lands in perpetuity. Does it sound a bit like short-term thinking versus long-term thinking? Oh, it is absolutely short-term thinking. I know 30 years sounds like a long time, but it's not. 
it's not a long time. You know, this it, it will be been and gone in 30 years and there will just be this trail of negative impacts that will linger for generations, centuries. So, Kate, you know, what do you hope for the future? You, you've got this, you've got a four-year-old. Um, they may want to become the next generation on this family farm. What's the, what's the, the grand vision? What's the good outcome of all of this? What does it look like? So, there is currently no um, meaningful protections for prime agricultural land, either at a state or federal level. So, you could... Prime ag land can be really hard to define and it can change over time. However, there is actually no protections and this does seem utterly ridiculous since there is only a very limited supply of prime agricultural land in the world, let alone Australia, Um, and it just seems crazy not to protect important food-growing regions. So what we need is... Immediately here, we need the petroleum exploration licences extinguished from this area and ultimately long-term we need um, legislation that does more to protect agricultural resources for the generations of the future. And, I mean, to be clear, we're not just talking about feeding Gunnada. This this food goes right around the country, doesn't it? Yeah, Right around the country and, I mean, Australia is a net exporter of food. We produce much more food than we need, but that's actually important in terms of global food security because there are so many nations that can't even begin to produce as much food as they need. Obviously, there's still a significant um, poverty problem globally and these are important issues. Yeah, and this is important food. Yeah, um, Kate, thank you so much for laying it out for us so clearly and passionately. Really appreciate you fighting the good fight. I feel like you're fighting it on behalf of all of us, so thank you. Well, thank you for having me and we feel like we're fighting it on behalf of everyone too. We feel like it is just, you know, it has to be done even though it's exhausting and I would much rather be parenting than protesting but it's really important. Absolutely. Well, thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.